Good morning, Neighborhood Bible Church. It's good to see you guys. We're going to dismiss the kids now. That's what we're going to do. And so if you are a kid, be dismissed. Listen, it's really good to be back here. We uh, we intended to, to miss one week on vacation, and that turned into several weeks of various things. But um, we're, uh, we're happy to see friends and faces again that we haven't seen in a little while. And uh, I'm excited to be back in the book of John. And um, just exciting to hear the stuff that goes on uh, here that doesn't happen on Sunday morning. And just the worship that goes on and just the... Um, the ministry that goes on and, and the way that the body is caring for one another. Um, just be encouraged and know that there's a lot of things happening uh, at this church. And, and uh, for some of you that want to find out more and how, how what's happening and how can I be involved in it, come and talk to me. Come and talk to a community group leader. And uh, we'll try to do our best to just bring testimonies up and bring people up and let them share, uh, not just for the sake of like, or specifically not for the sake of look at me, but rather look at what God's doing in our midst. And it's just exciting. It's fun stuff. Uh, listen, this morning we're going to stay in the book of John like we've been in a while, uh, for a while. So I just invite you to open up to John chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, just slip your hand up and we'll get uh, someone from the back and grab you a Bible. There may be a Bible in the uh, seat in front of you. And so just uh, feel free to open up there to John chapter 8. And um, also in your bulletin, there's a, a handout that you can certainly follow along with if you'd like. And uh, so you can pull that out as well. So in this Gospel of John, if you were to read all four Gospels, you would notice uh, some distinct differences about John. And uh, just kind of by way of review, uh, we started the book uh, a few months ago, and we decided to start in chapter 1, verse 1, which seemed like a logical place to start. And uh, as, you, as you start the book of John, the Gospel of John, you get this picture very quickly that John begins his gospel in a place that the other three don't begin. He begins kind of with this, this heavenly backdrop, and he starts with Christ not in a manger. He doesn't start with his grandparents and great-grandparents. Instead, he starts with Jesus Christ as an eternal being in heaven. And then that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book. It's kind of this, this backdrop, if you will. And John is a is the kind of author that um, that decided to to structure his um, his gospel this way. He basically, uh, if you were bored as a kid in church and you were playing the game with your brothers, for instance, of uh, let's see if I can find a page of the Bible that contains nothing but red words. Uh, this was a game that I played when I was a kid because I was bored in church one time. And um, the best place I discovered to, to win at that game is to flip open to the book of John. <laughs> because in the book of John, there are these long speeches of Jesus. And if you had the red letter edition, you would win at that game and beat your brothers. And that was a good thing. Uh, somehow God works in all of that and drew me to himself. But anyways, that's how it worked that Sunday. Um, so John has these long speeches. And then he kind of frames them by different stories that go on, narratives, if you will, and there are, there are these signs that accompany things that kind of back up his speeches and what he's saying. And then through the book, we've been wanting to kind of highlight these, these seven I am statements. Jesus comes and says, I am. And then he reveals himself in some way, shape, or form. And this morning, we come to the second great kind of I am statement. And these are signs 
or markers. Again, just imagine you're driving down the freeway. We just got back from vacation in Disneyland a few weeks ago. And if it said Disneyland next exit, you'd be like, yes, there it is. And this was a sign that pointed the way and said, Messiah, right here. And this morning, what we're going to look at is the second of his seven I am statements. John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. Remember that? And here's what he went on to do. He didn't just talk and say, I am the bread of life. Then he goes on to do this miracle of feeding 5,000 people. And he ties it together. This morning, we're going to look at, I am the light of life. And in John chapter 9, he's going to heal a blind man. In essence, giving light to darkened eyes. And we're going to see this drumbeat all through John's gospel. He's going to reveal himself as something, and then he's going to back it up with a sign or a miracle that, that confirms and says, yes, this is true. Let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the scriptures. Father, thank you for being present with us this morning. I thank you, God, even that it's cold and rainy out and and even a little dark out. And God, here we are in a warm place. Here we are comforted by heat. We're comforted by light. We're comforted by the presence of one another. I pray, Lord, that spiritually this would be a safe haven. I pray, God, this would be a place that we could relax, that we could drink deeply from you, Lord, that we would hear from you. God, many of us in this room have prepped our hearts for worship this morning. We've come hungry to meet with you. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would light the way and show us what we need to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at John chapter 8 and starting in verse 12. What I want to do this morning is this. There's a lot of back and forth dialogue between Jesus and some Pharisees. He makes some statements. But really, I want to focus just on three things that he says, and your, your sermon notes kind of bear this out, that we're just going to look at these three things. Um, we're going to focus mostly on this, on this verse 12. I'm going to go all the way through verse uh, 30 this morning, but look at me, uh, look at with me in, in John 8, 12. He says this, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. It doesn't take uh, much thinking at all to realize we live in a dark world, does it? You just can look around and realize, yeah, we live in a dark world, and we know what we're talking about. It doesn't mean that we're in Alaska and it's dark you know, 24 hours a day. It means that you look around and you go, yeah, there's just darkness around. And um, maybe some of you in this room just come from families, and you're like, man, don't even take me back there. There's darkness in, in the home that I grew up in. And, you know, there's just darkness at work, and uh, people just aren't, straight people just aren't truthful and uh click on the news and just just it bears it out we just live in a dark world and this metaphor or picture of light i I just hope that you'll see this really clearly this morning but it's a it's a brilliant metaphor that that jesus uses and all through the old testament god is spoken of as light and the word light and this idea of light kind of indicates the redemptive work of god all through the old testament and then Jesus taps into that, and he grabs onto that, and he begins to, to apply it to himself. By saying, I am the light of the world, a Jewish mindset would hear that and go, wow, 
We've called God our light before. It would hearken back to a pillar of fire by night that God provided to, to lead the way. And it would begin to kind of trigger some kinds of things. This passage is interesting because it reveals... Uh, look, at, look at the word... Um, well, we'll actually get to it in a little bit. But it says... Um, uh, I'm blanking on where it is. Um, we'll get to that. We'll skip that. Um, but this idea of light is a, is, a, is a really interesting metaphor. I was teaching on a different passage, but talking about light in, um, in China in 2005. I was in rural China. I had very little in common with most of the people I was talking with. And yet, um, through a translator, I just asked this question. I said, how many of you as kids, and these were Bible college students, 80 Bible college students from 16 years of age to 80 years of age, how many of you as kids were scared of the dark? You know what? Every single hand shot up. In some way, shape, or form, were you scared of the dark? And I just thought, man, what a brilliant metaphor to use to say, I am the light of life. Because as kids, we're scared of the dark, right? And there's boogeymen under our bed, and it's a scary thing, and you want to be close to mom, you want to have a nightlight, and that translates whether you lived 2,000 years ago or whether you live today, and it translates whether you're super wealthy or you live in a city like ours where it's hard to even find a truly dark spot, or you live in rural China where when the lights go out, they're really out. This idea of light and darkness, we just get that. And it just, it just crosses all of these, all of these barriers. It's interesting, isn't it, that we were scared of the dark as children, and then the Bible bears this out, but as we grow into adults, there's a tendency to, to love the darkness. And there's a, there's a tendency to, to move from being scared of the dark to it says that men love the darkness. And in the darkness, under the cover of night, all kinds of sin creeps up and we're not accountable for our actions and, and we feel like we can do things and get away with things. I remember this bearing out so vividly watching the, the riots in Los Angeles in the early 90s. And it was just incredible, this, this decision had gone forth, and, and all this chaos broke out in the streets of, of L.A. And when all of a sudden there was no power, I think normal, everyday thinking people began to cross barriers and do things they would never have done in the past. And all of a sudden, under the cover of darkness, people are breaking in stores and just looting them. And cameras are rolling, but people are just laughing and, and, and going crazy. And it just makes you think, man, what if there was, what if there was no light? What if we just always did what was right in our sight? What kind of chaos would that be? What kind of sheer terror would that, would that really lead to? And, and that's kind of a vivid picture of, of what that, of what that looks like. Men love the darkness. I think there's a different kind of darkness that we're really actually scared of as adults. It's a, it's a dark night of the soul. It's a spiritual darkness. There's a weird sense that we can love the darkness, but even as adults still be that kind of scared kid who's, who's really scared and, and miserable in that darkness. And, and um, fascinating kind of how this plays out. Into this universally understood principle of darkness and light, God shows up, enters into the thick of our problems, and reveals himself as the light of life. You ask someone this question. What is the light of life? Now, outside of a, um, of a, of a church setting, uh, if we were to ask that question in here and we're reading this passage, we would immediately tie things to Jesus and we would begin to think about that. 
Listen to what John uh, 1.4, this was our prologue. John 1.4 says this, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So here again, John opens the whole gospel. If you go read 1 John tonight, you will see this. John's like this painter who uses very bold colors, black, white, just a lot of contrast. And he uses light and darkness all through 1 John as well as just kind of this real contrasting kind of a deal. Ask a person today. You just say, you just go to them and say, where would we be without the light of life? And they go, what are you talking about? And you just say, well, what, what is the light of life? I think they may come up with the sun. If someone asked me that, I wasn't in a religious setting or wasn't thinking about Jesus, I would say the light of life, I guess the biggest light of life I can think of is the sun. Now, let me just hear, where would we be without the sun? Cold, frozen, yeah, really cold. What else? Hungry, yeah, no plant would be growing. What else? Dead, yeah, that's kind of the ultimate one, right? We'd be, it'd be pretty dark, right? We just wouldn't be able to see a whole lot. It'd be, it'd be pretty terrifying. Uh, we'd be dead, maybe, so we wouldn't know. But it would be a, it would be a bad place. Um, it's just kind of interesting, you know, that you, you think about the creation story and God just speaking into existence the sun. You think about God just speaking into existence all that we know. And uh, I'm not a huge astronomy fan, per se, but I took astronomy at West Valley College. That's the extent of my knowledge. But you begin to look at the stars and you begin to look at the galaxy that we live in and then you begin to go beyond that and realize we're one of many galaxies and you begin to think and try to wrap your brain about what a light year is and what happens is you begin to marvel at the size and scope of our universe and begin to marvel at the size and scope of our little peon brains that are trying to figure this stuff out and you realize that it's a pretty big deal uh, it's just a fun comparison to think about the sun, S-U-N, versus the sun, S-O-N. God created light, and he says it is good. He created light and dark, and he, he created light and said it's good. And then Jesus comes on the scene revealing himself as light. I want to have you just think for a moment about the sun. Think about the sun. The sun is this huge glowing ball at the very center of our own solar system. Everything that you and I know and experience and will live for all of our time will revolve around this tiny planet called Earth. I was on NASA's website this week just reading about the sun and just kind of marveling about our one little star. This is a cool picture because this is an artist's description. Uh, that's a real picture of the sun from NASA. That's a, that's a comparison size of Earth. So everything you and I know and exist and, and everything that we'll live out in our days takes place on that little ball right there. And for those of you who've flown recently, I flew to China in April. I know just how big the earth is. I just go, man, I can't believe we're still flying. Are we there yet? Maybe it is quicker to just dig a hole through the middle. I mean, this is crazy. It's just a long way from my perspective. Then you begin to pull out and realize, man, the sun is huge. The sun is really hot. It provides light, heat, and other energy to earth. It dwarfs us. It could kill us. And yet it blesses us. You know what's fascinating about the sun is the sun is huge, but the sun is also intimate in a way. There's a warmth to the sun. There's a nurturing element to the sun. I would even say there's just a softness to the sun. You know, John Denver said that sunshine on his shoulders makes him happy. 
It's just true. I, there's just something about laying out in the sun and just being at the beach and just feeling the warmth of the sun. And you realize, you start to get as close as we are in that picture, you hate the sun. You're like, man, this thing could just, boom, in an instant, destroy me. Isn't that a cool picture of Jesus, though? Jesus, from the very start of our time, we talked about the fact that, that John introduces him this way. Look at John 1, John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Catch this part right here. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, that little ball we just looked at was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There's the sun, this blazing ball of fire that we get relief from, and then there's the, the son, Jesus Christ, and these ideas about him. Jesus is both this eternal being. If we could see him in his, in his eternal glorious state, it would destroy us. I mean, it would be like the sun. In fact, 1 Timothy 6 talks about God living in unapproachable light. Imagine light so bright, you just get to a point, you can't even approach it any longer. The best depiction I could think of is the earth getting close to the sun. You're like, whoa, stop, turn it down. That's Jesus on the one hand, and yet we just saw pictures behind us, light of the world. You came down into darkness, and what's the image behind but a little baby, this little infant. Many of us went Thursday night, as Rob mentioned, to to, to Bethlehem over at First Baptist Santa Clara. And um, it's just the coolest thing to be there and to watch the gospel portrayed to all these people. And I'm just standing there, and this has happened several years. We saw our next-door neighbor there again, and we're singing a worship song. It happens to be a Christmas carol, but it's a worship song to the eternal Jesus, my Lord and Savior, the God that made everything The one that, as Colossians we talked about, everything revolves around Christ. It all centers on Christ. Yet here he is in this very approachable, very humble, very intimate picture of a little baby. And that's the Advent season. That's that's the Christmas season that we're celebrating. Jesus is close. Jesus is intimate, nurturing, and joy-inducing, far more than sunshine on on our shoulders. There's implications for us. It says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Two things that accompany this statement of who he is, this statement of what he's all about. We'll never walk in darkness, we'll have the light of life. Let me just comment on this for a couple of minutes. We'll never walk in darkness. Does this mean that we never struggle with sin? Does that mean, is that what it means for a Christian? I don't think so. You always have to interpret Scripture against Scripture. And if you go read Romans 6, 7, and 8 today, you'll realize, no, there's this ongoing struggle with sin. Many other places, First Peter chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, talks about the fact that God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Oh, cool. But then it says two verses later, Therefore, make every effort to add to your faith. And then it lists seven virtues. So there's a struggle to it. There's a, there's a fighting to it that we're supposed to do. It doesn't mean that our struggle with sin is over. It means that your will, your mind, and emotions have been rescued and restored from the fall. We're going through a book on Friday mornings as a group of men. and um, The book that we're, that we're going through right now, we're about to wrap it up, in fact, is a book called um, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. 
And in this book, he goes into these different things and he kind of walks through. And I just want to read kind of a, a quote from it. He talks about the, the will and the mind and the emotions and how at the fall, those were corrupted. At the fall, those were darkened. That means the day we were born, our emotions have a bent toward things that are destructive for us. You ever find that true? Most junior high relationships fall in this category, you know? Um, and, and it can just carry on. That same pattern can just carry on. And you're like, why, why do I like the very things I know are lousy and lead to death? Well, it's because your emotions have been tainted by the fall. The reason of people, their minds have been darkened by the fall. And so that's you and I, until the light of truth comes in, our thinking is clouded. Some of you can attest to the fact of what you thought about Christians and Christ and the Bible and the Christ and, and, and the cross, and it all was foolishness. Like, man, that was nonsense. I hated those Christians because they were just knuckleheads and none of it made any sense. And then God invades your life one day and opens your eyes, just like a blind man, and you begin to see it and you just go, man, it's been there all along. Unbelievable. Here's Jerry Bridges from Pursuit of Holiness. With the new birth, our reason is again enlightened. Our affections and desires redirected and our wills subdued. But though this is true, it is not true all at once. In actual experience, it is a growing process. He goes on to say that we're told to renew our minds. That's from Romans 12 too. We're told to set our affections on things above. That's Colossians 3.1. And we're told to submit our wills to God. That's James 4, 7. There's just a daily prayer, isn't it? Lord, renew my mind. God, my emotions today, I set them on you. My affections, I set them on things above, not on things below. And Lord, my will, James 4, 7, I just need it subdued. I would rather do your will than my will, because your will is far better. Would you just help me? That's it. That would just be a great daily prayer. <clears throat> Not only are there two promises attached, but I want to talk about this for a second. Just the idea of being scared of the, of the dark. I mentioned that as kids, it's probably something we can all kind of identify with on, on some level, that we were scared of the dark at some point. But sometimes that continues, even on into being a Christian. And I would just challenge you to fight against fear by remembering and soaking in the promises of God. You know what? You don't have to be afraid of fear even. You feel fear well up. And fear can take on a more adult phrase like anxiety. You know what anxiety is? It's worry, which really translates to fear. I'm out of control. I can't control this. I don't know how to accomplish this. I don't have the resources, courage, strength, moral character, whatever it is, to handle this. Wow, I'm feeling panicky. That's anxiety. Now, anxiety sounds far more sophisticated, so we like to be anxious instead of fearful, but it's really fear, isn't it? And that's where you just go, man, I'm told to be anxious for absolutely nothing. But in every circumstance, just let my request be made known to God and he'll give me peace that won't even make sense to me. That's found in the book of Philippians. So what you do is you start to memorize, you start to think on the promises of God. Some of you are fearful in relationships. Some of you are fearful about job future. Many of us in this room are fearful about finances. Some of you are fearful about health issues. And in all of that, there is a real peace that's available. And it's not a magic trick that you quickly throw up a promise of God, but it's a sense where you just begin to train your mind and say, you know what, I'm going to focus on the promises of God. Here's a great promise to start with. I will never leave you or forsake you. 
I mean, do we believe that? If we believe that, that we're holding daddy's hand through all of this, it just changes our circumstances so much. That picture of the sun and the earth, we're the ones on the earth. We can't even see us, right? We can't see our biggest monument that we've built because it's way, way, way too tiny. And God holds all of that in his hand and he holds our hand as well. Listen to Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. It would be a great Bible study for you sometime to go through the promises of God. Don't go buy a study at Brian. Just look up the promises of God in your Bible and read them. Here's what you'll go on to find. God's people. We are loved. We are provided for. We are nurtured. We are held secure. The list can go on and on. Here are some exciting future things. He's coming again for his own. He's coming back. We are part of an eternal kingdom. You and I have supernatural power to handle and think through and be emotional about. And those are the promises of God. Let your mind think on those things. Let your mind claim those. Appeal as people did in the Bible to say, Lord, by your good name, you said this, you better come through on this or else it's going to look real bad for the people around me. Man, what a cool appeal. God, everyone at work knows I'm a Christian. I've already said you're going to handle this. Come through. He often comes through in ways that I don't really plan. (laughs) I structure it one way. He comes through in a different way. But you know what? If you walk into a, a dark season, if you walk into a storm, and you just go, Lord, I promise I will give you the glory for this. On the other end of this, I just you'll get the, you'll get the praise and glory. Handle this. I'm yours. There is a peace that comes over you that your coworkers, your family members will come and say, you are nuts. You should be steaming mad. I know, but I'm not. I'm letting God handle it. Man, you are entitled to this, this, and this. I know. But God's told me to let all that go. It's just remarkable. That will be a witness just by doing that. Here's a word to to parents this morning. Um, I love to look at the scriptures, and being a parent teaches us about God, doesn't it? It just teaches us about what it means to be um, a child. And as we parent our own kids, I will say certain things and go, man, How many times has God said that very thing to me? And so it should give us understanding as parents. Let me just say this about bedtime. I've got a bunch of small kids right now. We're in a phase of life where bedtime is an event, right? I mean, it just just takes time and energy and effort, and it's a blast. Most nights we really like bedtime. But I would just say as parents or future parents in this room, don't dismiss your kids' fear of the dark. Our bedtimes in general, now we have some bad nights here and there, but in general, you know what our bedtimes are filled with? They're filled with loving words. They're filled with time. They're filled with eye contact. They're filled with loving touch. They're filled with reassuring comments. They're filled with prayer. They're filled even with scripture and just claiming the promises of God. And there's a way that you can come alongside your child and minister to them. There's even a way that you can come and model to them. You know what? When daddy gets scared, you know what he does? He just cries out to Jesus. And you can just model to them. Man, if you're scared, know that mommy and daddy are right outside this door. We're going to be here. 
But more than that, Jesus is here with you. And you can tenderly nurture your children through that instead of dismiss it. We're all scared of the dark in some way, shape, or form. Here's the other side of things is maybe you love the dark. Maybe this morning you're like, I'm not scared of it. I find myself running to it. And if I'm really honest this morning, man, when I'm exposed to the light, it's just uncomfortable because I'm one who loves the darkness. Let me just say a couple of comments. First Peter 5.8 says this, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Glenn knows of a person in Africa that was attacked by a lion and shares this gruesome story that gives me nightmares about what that looks like. It's no joke messing around with sin. It's no joke tinkering with this stuff. And those who are in the darkness need to be told some words of sharp rebuke. I would tell youth parents, I would tell youth, you know what, as a young godly person trying to keep his way pure, there is not much good for you to be outside of your own home very late into the night. Lest we all become legalists, maybe I should refrain from giving a, an exact hour, but you guys know what I'm talking about. After a certain hour, there's just ugliness going on out there. Even if you don't have intentions of evil, evil will find you out if you're out and about running around after hours. So you know what? Get inside where you're accountable. Get inside where you can just go to bed and avoid all of that nonsense. Don't run with that crew. How about young Christian couples? Becky and I, um, in an effort to not be naive and just kind of mosey along in our relationship, we wanted to put in some boundaries in place. We wanted to put in a place where we could just say, man, we want to honor you, Lord, with our dating relationship even. And so she lived in a household of girls, and um, their parents had an excellent rule. Uh, I was a Christian guy at a Bible college. They didn't trust me. Good on them. You know, that was a great thing. Our rule at the house, at my wife's parents' house, was the door was always open, no matter what. Well, what that does is for a young college couple who is pretty seriously dating um, to always be having you know, younger sisters bebopping in, showing the latest craft or whatever else. It, just, it was fun most of the time, but not so fun some of the time, if you know what I mean. And, and we were just wanting to talk. We were just wanting to be alone, and, and um, it was a great rule. And so there were certain times where he said, man, we just got to get out of there. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't go and decide to find the absolute darkest place in the valley. Let's go pray and have spiritual time together there. You know why? Because that's dumb. That's like saying, you who lion, here I am. I'm covered in blood, but you can't find me. It's just stupid, right? You don't do that. So here's, here's what's funny is that um, at, at Alana Expressway and, uh, and Camden Avenue is a Safeway. And I remember parking there, and uh, we would once in a while go and park there and talk. And, um, you know, a young couple in love can talk for a long time. And so we would sit in her car, and she had this convertible MG. We'd sit in the car and talk. And the reason we parked and talked there is it was a public place. It was well lit. We weren't going to be tempted or, you know, if someone came and found us, they wouldn't be like, wow, you're engaged in all kinds of evil activity. Well, we're sitting in Safeway parking lot. That's not too bad. So we'd sit there and talk. And um, I remember one time we're sitting there talking, and... Um, and the cops pull up behind us, you know, and we're like, well, that's kind of weird, you know. And uh, and they come out and they said, hey, um, you know, we had someone call the cops on you guys from Safeway. And we're like, really? And uh, 
They said, yeah, they said that you've been out parking, you know, that you've been out here for a couple of hours and they're kind of getting worried. And I'm just thinking, man, this is just crazy. I mean, here's a young Christian couple trying to just do the right thing. And it's like, you know, we could, we could be out at two in the morning, right? And just doing whatever and no cops would show up. Or we could be in the Safeway parking lot at 10 at night and have the people call the cops on us. So bottom line is this. Young people, make a plan to not sin. Don't be naive. It says be self-controlled and be alert. Figure it out. There's an enemy out there that's prowling around just waiting to, to jump on you. Those of you who are, are dabbling with the darkness, those of you who are dating darkness, just stop it. End all of that. Because that just leads to death. All sin leads to death. Some of us are scared of the dark. Some of us, are, some of us love the dark. All right, let me move on. Look at verse 13. No shock. But the words of Jesus aren't immediately submitted to and welcomed. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. There's a shock. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if, but if I do judge, my decisions are right. Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Verse 19, then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he said, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below and I am from above. You are of the world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand what he was telling them about his father, so Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own behalf, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. We stayed a long time on this idea of I am the light of the world because that's one of these seven I am's. Why did Jesus come? Why Christmas? That's why. He came to illuminate darkened minds. Instead of stumbling and fumbling through life in the darkness, we now have the, the, the path well lit because of Christ. But he goes on to say two more things that I just want to draw attention to. One is that I am going away and one is that I am not alone. Under the idea of I am going away is, is just this picture that the whole validity of Jesus' testimony hinges on his origin. Really his origin is, and his destination. And so if you're, an, if you're an, an opponent of Jesus, if you can just drum up, look, this is a, this is a nobody from a nobody town. That's all this is. And that's what they were banking their argument on. They're like, look, we're the trained Pharisees. We've had this training from this rabbi. Who's this guy? 
Where is your dad even? If they could produce his lowly dad who's a carpenter guy, then they would just show, man, this is, this is not the Messiah. This is not the one to be followed. He's making false claims. As for Jesus' side, or those who follow him, his origin is incredibly important because if in fact he is the sent one from God, then he must be obeyed and listened to. Then this is truth. Come down from heaven. And we better pay close attention, and we better leave nets, and we better follow this guy because this is in fact the Messiah who has the words of life. Look at the idea of where he came from is tied to where he is going. Verse 14, I know where I came from, And where I am going, but you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. Verse 21, he says, once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. They confuse this because their reasoning is darkened. Their minds are darkened. He says, you're from below. I'm from above. Just as John painted from day one of this gospel, Jesus starts in his eternal home and will end up in his eternal home. They are totally confused by this and jump to suicide. Is he talking about suicide? Is is this guy going to kill himself? Is that what he's talking about? Is that why he said that we can't follow him? Where is he going to go? And again, it's base logic. It's base thinking. Their minds aren't enlightened to the spiritual world and the spiritual realm at all. Have you had this conversation with people before? You're talking about spiritual matters. You're trying to describe to them this new life. You're trying to describe to them why you value this versus this when everyone else values this. And when you try to talk and just reason together, it's like you're kind of talking on just two different planes. It doesn't mean you're better than the other person. It means that you're enlightened. God's given you His Holy Spirit and you're able to understand things. I've had people say this, I've read the Bible before, but I don't understand a single thing in it. I yielded my life to Christ. I began to walk in obedience. And miraculously, I can totally understand what the Bible's saying now. I read and even studied those same passages before, and I just didn't get it. I totally missed it. That's because our reason is darkened. Our minds have been darkened. And it's an exciting thing when people start to grasp the truth. I love walking through the Scriptures with new believers. I love to just open the Bible and read it. Say, what does that say to you? What does that mean? And they just begin to realize, man, God's giving me understanding and insight that I never had before. This idea of him going away and where he's going speaks of his identity and of his mission. I want to just kind of walk through. The the gospel is really found all through the Bible. Here's the gospel laid out for us in John chapter 8. Most of us would know John 3.16, right? We could jump to that one and go, the gospel, I've got to give it to him. Here it is. What's amazing is you open your Bible to Genesis 1 and read it all the way through to Revelation sometime, you will just find the gospel all through it. And not just the gospel, but the gospel for all men, the light of all men. And so God's heart from the beginning was to save people from all nations. Now, if those who are uh, you know, interested in dying in their sin... Um, He kind of rolls out uh, a couple of things here. Four ways to ensure a tragic and eternal death. Here they are. Uh, And and the Pharisees, just this banter back and forth with the Pharisees, there's kind of an interesting just thing that goes on here where they're attacking him things. And he's saying things that are just, because we know the end of the story, are pretty magnificent, but we don't have time to to jump into them. Here's here's number one is to just be self-righteous. 
And if you think about it, if you're self-righteous, that's the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel is imparted righteousness. I give you righteousness because you're not righteous on your own. If you're self-righteous, you are opposed to the gospel. You're opposed to the good news. You're opposed to the very reason Jesus came as a baby and died on a cross and rose from the dead to conquer death and sin. Because evidently, you can do it. Because you're self-righteous. What's fascinating is Jesus is saying, you can't come here. He's talking about heaven. I came from heaven, I'm going back to heaven. You can't come there. Because you don't believe in the path to get there. And that's me. Because you don't know me, you don't know my Father. Well, isn't that the gospel? He then offers this, this if clause um, in, verse, uh, in verse number 23. He, or verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. That sounds harsh, Jesus. That's a hard gospel to preach. Yeah, it kind of is. The cross offends. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Some of your Bibles read, unless you believe. That's the escape clause that we all cling to as Christians. I too will die in my sins, unless I believe in this one and what he claims to be. That's why when we baptize people, we ask them about their belief. Do you believe that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be? And when they ask, who are you? They may have been saying it like, who are you? Like, who are you to tell us anything? And I love Jesus' response. Uh, just who I've been claiming to be all along. Ah! Like, it must have just, they might want to pull their hair out. Like, ah, you just make me so mad, you know. That must have been the way that it went down. Uh, be self-righteous is, is one option, uh, one necessity. The other is just to, to be worldly. It says that they're, they're from here. And so because of that, all their thinking is from here. All their logic is from here. How do you get to heaven? Well, let me figure it out on this little tiny ball. I will figure it out. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is what life is like if all you think about is under the sun, just on that little tiny ball. And there's a lot of people, many of us in this room can attest to trying to figure life out from under the sun. That's just being worldly. Being worldly doesn't necessarily mean that you're out doing all the junk that the world has to offer. It just means that you're thinking worldly. Jesus points out that his origin and destination is altogether and completely different. First John warns us about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And that's just knocking our door all the time. Think this way. Reason this way. Be emotional about these things. Here's the third thing is to be unbelieving. Jesus cuts to this core issue in verse 24 of their belief. You know what? If you believed, you could follow me. You can come with me. But because you were hardness of heart, you can't follow me. What's ironic is they thought they were going to heaven. They thought they were in. They thought they were good. That ought to be a lesson to anyone who's sitting in a church on Sunday morning today. Because we might think, yeah, we're in. We're good. We're in church this morning. Those people out there are the ones who need to worry. Well, maybe from this passage, we ought to just take a second look and go... What do I really believe? What would Jesus comment to me? Could I follow him? Could I go where he's going? Fourthly is this, to just be willfully ignorant. We're just seeing the, the, the Pharisees. There's some people that you share Christ with. There's some people that you live your good life in front of and with and walk through life with. And no matter what is presented to them, they're just not going to believe. 
They've dug their heels in, and no matter what you show them, how well you logically lay things out, you could, you could bring C.S. Lewis to them and just go, wow, here he is, you know, and just have him argue about the apologetics of the faith and, you know, line up all kinds of things in people. They're just not going to believe. You know what it is? It's a hardness of heart. It's a blindness. Can a blind man heal himself? No, he's blind. And there's some people who just, I mean, that's where we are. We're all dead in our sin unless God illuminates our eyes and opens our eyes to it. I'm not alone is the second thing he talks about. And um, in, verse, uh, in verse 16, he says, My judgment is right because I'm not alone. In verse 18, basically he's saying the Father backs up my witness. Verse 28, um, My actions and words are that of God. I only do and say what pleases the Father. I'm not here on my own accord. I'm not here by myself. The one who sent me is with me. Here's the, the really cool thing. I'm going to have the band come up in just a second. Um, is to realize that you and I are called to be just like Jesus. Here's a little match. We're called to be light. You and I are also going away. You and I are also not alone. We can mimic Jesus just even in how he meanders through a day teaching in the temple. And we can see that we're to be light. We're going away. We're never alone in this. Do we do it to perfection the way Christ did? Of course not. Um, I wasn't able to find it. It's missing in action because it was used recently to find some firewood. But I happen to own the, uh, the absolute coolest camping accessory that is made. So I know you're all wondering what that is. I'm going to tell you. Um, I remember seeing these several years ago, and I remember seeing this, and I thought, man, as a culture, as a society, we've sunk to a new level of laziness and and just trying to figure out where to spend our money. And I thought, that is the goofiest, silliest thing ever. I'll never own one of those. And what it was is one of those headlamps that that you click on, and it's got three little LEDs, and you wear this sweet headband. And here's what challenged my assumptions. I had some base assumptions about that. I happened to see a friend of mine by the name of Jeff Schultz at a men's retreat several years ago wearing one of these products. And here's what forced me to reconsider is I thought, Jeff is neither worldly, he's actually quite a godly guy, and he's definitely not lazy. So it forced me to reconsider my whole opinions about these things. And so then I end up getting one, I think, for Christmas or something. And I tell you, it is the greatest accessory. I don't care how I look in it anymore. Because you know what? When you're camping and you have to use the facilities in the middle of the night, whoop, click it on, you're free. You're digging around your tent at night. You're not holding a light and scruffing around. You're just like this. You're digging around. It's the greatest thing. You're cooking. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Honestly, 20 bucks. I mean, there's nothing that beats it. Here's why, here's why it's such a cool product, though. Because I go outside of places that have light. Here's the picture. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, you are the light of the world. Don't like live up to try to be the light of the world. He's telling us our identity and our mission. You're the light of the world. Guess what? You either put that under a bowl or you just go shine it on a mountainside. 
Go do good works so people will see your good works and give praise to your Father in heaven. If I handed each one of us a little headlamp this morning and we wore it in here, you know how much effect it would have? Very little. You would just think it looks goofy. But tonight, if you wore it around your house and neighborhood, you would get a decent amount of benefit from it. If the power went out, you would suddenly really get benefit from it. Here's the cool picture, though. If you were to go to the uttermost parts of the world, like a campground near Yosemite or something, and the lights go out, the sun goes down, and all of a sudden you have one of these, it becomes essential to you having a good camp experience if that's your only light. And if no one else has it around, man, they would just be drawn to your campsite. Dude, that's a sweet lantern. Can I be near you? Yes. Walk with me. I'll help show you the way. You know what that is? That's missions. Band, come on up. That is what missions is all about. The, the, the problem for some of us is we hear that we're the light of the world and we all gather in here on Sunday mornings and we go, yes, there is a collective light here. But that light was never meant to just camp out, hang out in these four walls. In fact, it actually has its most effect when you go out where it's really, really dark. And I know the objections, but there's foul language out there. There's values that don't line up with me. It's awfully uncomfortable out there. There's even dirty jokes. Yeah, I know all of that. I want you to listen to this song and I want you to think on the words and then we're going to wrap up uh, with a, a closing thought or two. Jesus gave us light. He gifted it to us. That's what salvation is. Salvation is just being given light. And He did that not so that we could just have it, but to be a blessing to the nations, to be a light to the nations. There's this word floating around uh, kind of the, the, the Christian world right now. It's called missional. And it's just kind of funny because you can't get far in an article in some Christian magazine or the bookshelf at Berean without seeing this word missional. And there's certain bandwagons that all of us just like to jump on. And right now, everyone's on the missional bandwagon. And what I... What I wanted to teach you really quick as we close is this. I think the word missional is a great word. And unfortunately, it's getting clouded with some different kinds of ideas about church growth and social action and just kind of this limiting little picture. But here's in a nutshell why I would say I want our church to be a missional church. It first starts with a right understanding of God and who God is. And the reality that God is a sent God. He sent himself to us. And as Christians, as little Christs, we are the sent people of God. So it begs the question, where are we going? Where are we being sent to? Jesus left his rightful, safe, comfortable, very well-lit place in heaven for the sake of lost sheep for the sake of the broken for the sake of the hurting and the imprisoned and the poor for you and I what it means to be missional is to realize that is who our God is and that is what we're called to be we leave the safe rightful, comfy place of church 
and fellowship groups and Bible studies and all of that for the sake of the hungry, for the sake of the wayward and the lonely and those in the dark. And guess what? It does get scary. It does get frightening. It's very, very uncomfortable. It's also our mission. This difference between missional and just kind of missions as a part of a church, I would describe it this way. Instead of just reaching out to lost people, it's this idea of going out to lost people. The picture is that we're in this boat And if we're reaching out and we're the church, it means that we're confined by the church and we're reaching out as far as we can. Hang on to me. I might fall in. I might get wet. It's really cold. And I think there's sharks in there. And we're going to reach out as far as we can and get them to church. Pull them to a program. Get them into a Bible study. Get them to talk to the pastor so they can learn about Jesus. That's that's reaching out. And I think churches, God's doing something in our churches, not this church, but church, capital C, that says, man, we're not, we're not called to reach out. We're called to go out. I'm with you. All authority and power has been given to me, and I'm with you every step of the way. Man, that means jump out of the boat. Go out to them. You go, man, how does that look? That sounds really, you know, up here. Glad you asked. Here we go. This is a little card that we made up. All it does is advertise three events, a Christmas Eve service, two Christmas services next week, and a middle school uh, winter retreat happening in January. I cannot tell you, we haven't spent a ton of money at this church on advertising. Very little. You're not supposed to do it that way. You're supposed to start, start a church with like, I don't know, Madison Avenue behind you, but we didn't do it that way. But every time we spent a little bit of money on these cards, people come and I say, how did you find out about NBC? They go, man, I got this card. I got this flyer. Well, I happen to know how many we've put out since we've existed. It's not that many. Which means that God takes this little three-cent piece of paper and he takes a little insignificant thing and does something wonderful with it. Here's what reaching out versus going out looks like. Going out is you, not waiting for your community group to initiate it, although if a community group wanted to do this, praise God. But you grabbing a stack of these that John Giordano has made sure are available. We printed up an extra 2,000 of these for you to have at your workplace, for you to walk into Starbucks and say, can I just post this up on this bulletin board, this community board? For you to walk this neighborhood and go to people who need Jesus. To go to people who are dying in their sin unless they believe. Doesn't mean that you go and share the four spiritual laws, whack them over the head with a Bible. It just means, man, you're welcome and invited. And you know, in the process of that, God just uses you to be that light in the neighborhood. That's happening. Grab flyers before you leave. Last Wednesday and this coming Wednesday, um, how many been? 8,000, 6,000, 10,000? I can't remember. A lot of thousands went out to the, to the Cambrian resident, that little section of the neighborhood, that little free newspaper that goes around and hits all these homes. I, I just said a word of prayer on Wednesday. I said, God, it's a piece of paper. It's a, it's a cool thing that Ben designed. Would you just take that and multiply it? It's like a, little, like a little fish, a little loaf. Just draw people. We want people to love you and know you. 
We printed up the extras. So if you live in Cambrian, you're off the hook for that neighborhood. Drive to a different neighborhood and go and pass this out. Here's the second thing. 17 of you are committed to going to this Help One Child party happening on Saturday. And Ron's totally encouraged and blessed. And we can't wait to see what God's going to do to the unlovely of this world through you. That's going. That's not reaching. That's going. That's taking Saturday and going. Some of you are still interested in being a part of that. Ron, just wave your hand for a second. Talk to Ron Rose. And uh, if you still want to give to that, if you want to avail yourself next Saturday, I plan on being there. It's like 2 in the afternoon. Talk to Ron. He'll give you all the details. We're just going to go and love on people. Let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for meeting me in my place of desperate need. Thank you for being the light of life that more than just illuminates, but warms and gives energy and causes growth. God, I pray that tonight, as we see the light of the sun reflected off the moon, it would give testimony and praise and glory and instruct us as to who we are in this world. God, as the sun comes up tomorrow morning, oh, that we'd start our day celebrating your ever new mercies for that day. Celebrating the warmth and light. And let it just be a reminder of who we are as your children. This morning, God, if there are people in this room who would say, I do not believe that. I have not placed my faith in the lifted up Son, Jesus Christ. Would you be heavy on their hearts? Would you convict them of their sin? Would you have them turn to you, God? And find life in you. Thank you, Lord, that we gather freely this morning in a warm and well-lit place. I pray our worship would continue right now by the way that we treat those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.